Good morning. The scripture this morning comes from Jonah 2, verses 1 through 10. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. Your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I remember it clearly as the most painfully brilliant, bright light that I had ever seen in my life. My uh, family was out in the middle of my grandfather's field in the middle of the night trying to catch a glimpse of the Leonid meteor showers. Uh, so this was late 90s. I, I was a lot younger then, obviously. And uh, it was an overcast night, you know, so we knew we, there, there wasn't a great chance of seeing much. But we were out there anyway, middle of the field, so far away from town, no light pollution, none of that. And in between these glimpses, between the clouds, we could see meteors shooting by. Uh, it was great. We were out there for, I think, four hours, three o'clock in the morning. My uncle and I volunteered to go back and get, uh, get the van, my dad's mid-80s Chevy conversion van, you know, with enough room for all five boys and all of our friends and all of the stuff he insisted on hauling everywhere he went. So we go back, my uncle takes the key, and he puts it in the ignition. He turns it one click, and it was so bright that we both put out our hands to block the light of the clock on the dashboard. <laughs> Three little green numbers that we had up to this point basically ignored. I mean, they're just there, but we'd been in the dark for so long that this tiny little light that we had taken for granted was suddenly the brightest thing around, and, and it hurt. It blinded. We had to put a book or something in front of it so that we could go pick everybody up. It was just too bright. So we're at this point in our story of exploring Jonah, Jonah the, the very worst missionary, the world's worst missionary. Uh, we're at our point in exploring the story of Jonah where now he has been in the dark for three days. Three days in the belly of the fish, three days, three nights, God has put him in the dark in physical blindness so that the little light of God's grace that up to this point he'd mostly ignored or taken for granted would be the only light left for Jonah to see. Sometimes we have to be taken into complete darkness in order to understand grace. Sometimes we have to be taken into complete and total and utter darkness to see the light of grace. 
As you're turning to Jonah 2, this is a a prayer, kind of a a prayer psalm that we're going to explore, and it's in this psalm that we begin to kind of catch the main theme or one of the main themes of the book of Jonah, that even a prophet, even a pastor or an elder or a regular churchgoer, even a prophet can be in the dark about grace. Even a prophet can be in the dark about grace, and so can we. So you turn to Jonah 2, it's uh, page 920 if you're using this Bible that's in front of you, and it's it's only three pages in this Bible, so I understand if it takes you a few extra minutes to find it, it usually takes me a while. But let me just recap where we are and uh, how we've gotten up to this point. Jonah, you'll recall from... Chapter 1, he's a prophet, he's been called by God, get up and go, go to Nineveh, preach against them. And there's sort of an implication in there, preach judgment, call out against them, preach judgment on them. But also we discover as we continue reading the story that Jonah understands there's an implication too that if Nineveh repents, God will forgive and not destroy them which is bad news for Jonah. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Assyria is the country that until recently has held uh, Israel, Jonah's home country, under its thumb. For Jonah, if he's going to go preach to Nineveh and give them an opportunity to regain their strength and re-oppress Israel, that's not in the best interests of the nation of Israel. So for the good of Israel, Jonah runs in the opposite direction. And the narrator or, the, or Jonah himself or whomever took this story and crafted it into this really literary form uh, pictures Jonah as going down, 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 down. He starts out by going down to the seaside and then down into a ship and then down into the bowels of the ship and then he's cast down into the waters and then he is down into the belly of a fish and now he's down in the mouth. I have to give a hat tip to our former senior pastor, John Crocker, for giving me that one. <laughs> I told him I was going to use it, so I had to. Uh, so he is down in, th- in despair, and he still has, we're re- we'll read in this prayer, this psalm, he still has farther down to go before he comes back up. Now, there's irony in this story. Irony abounds. Uh, But where we pick it up here in chapter 2 is we have a man who has been trying to run away from the presence of God, now prays, God, I don't know if you can see me anymore. I'm outside your presence. Now, Jonah needs to learn a lesson about grace. Sometimes a Even a prophet can be in the dark about grace. Jonah needs to learn a lesson about grace and how far God's grace extends. But before he can learn the lesson about grace, before we can learn a lesson about grace, there are some uh, sort of fundamental background beliefs or truths that we need to understand, beliefs that we need to take in and not just agree to but feel in order for grace to be appealing in order for grace to be all that we have left. So as we go through chapter 2 in Jonah's prayer psalm, we're going to see Jonah come to terms with the fact that God's judgment, God's punishment is just. It's deserved. We're going to see Jonah begin to wrestle with God's judgment and come to terms with it. 
And in admitting that, admitting that he's also, Jonah himself, is powerless. There's nothing he can do. He's got no ability in this situation. So God is just, Jonah is powerless, powerless. and finally, he's going to need to see that for the grace of God to come to him, for salvation, for deliverance from the fish to come to him, it costs. It costs somebody something. God is just. Jonah is powerless. Salvation costs something. As we walk through with Jonah this prayer in the belly of the fish, we're going to see all three of those things come out. And before we jump in, I just want to make a comment about the fish, because this is really the only thing to say about the fish. In Hebrew, it's a play on words. It's a fat fish. There's some alliteration there. A great big fish. The fish is not the point. The fact that there's a big fish is not the point. We don't need to try to come up with some medical scientific explanation for how long a you know, human being can withstand the gastric juices of a large amphibious mammal or whatever. Can you even say amphibious mammal? Are those separate? I don't remember my, thank you for saying no, science teachers. Um, <laughs> kingdom, phylum, class, order, I can't remember it. Um, it's not the point. The fish is not the point. The fish is simply the best situation, the most appropriate circumstances for Jonah to be alone with God. Chapter one, over and over and over again, somebody's doing something, something's happening, there's fast action, there's no real sense of time other than that things just happen quickly, and now everything has stopped. Three days, three nights, silence, darkness. Jonah is alone with God. So let's jump in and watch him come to terms with God's judgment, his own powerlessness, and the nature of salvation. Picks up, the prayer psalm picks up in verse 2 and starts out with sort of an introductory uh, thesis statement. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. That's a summary for the entirety of the prayer psalm. This is, you know, if you need to boil it down, in a Cliff's Notes version, this is what happened. I called out, God answered. And then the point of view shifts in the second half of Jonah 2, as Jonah continues, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you, God, heard my voice. Now, the belly of Sheol is a, a, a metaphor, a, a very evocative metaphor that's not used anywhere else in Scripture. One uh, commentator writes on it that this particular metaphor of being in, in the guts of the realm of the dead, being at the very core of the realm of the dead, conveys despair of the darkest hue. Utter, complete, total physical darkness, yes, but also emotional darkness, emotional despair. Jonah says, I was in the belly of shale. I was in the core, the center of the realms of the dead. Complete and utter despair but I cried, and you heard my voice. He goes on, verse 3, because, or for, you, God, cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows pass over me. Jonah cries out to God, describes his situation, but interestingly does not cry out to God in condemnation. God, why are you doing this to me? How, how dare you do this to me? Nor out of a sense of 
vindication. I don't deserve this. God, rescue me. He simply states, God, you are the one who threw me over. You're the one who threw me into the seas. You are the one who has brought me uh, to the center of the realms of the dead. Metaphorically speaking, of course, he's not actually dead. You're the one who brought me here. Your waves, your billows, your flood, your storm has swamped me. So we see Jonah coming face to face, coming to terms with the fact that God's the one who put him here. Or maybe a better way of putting it is Jonah's the one who put himself here, but God was absolutely right in allowing it to happen. See, God could have obviously had Jonah thrown overboard and then said, well, I'll go call another prophet now. But instead, he appointed a fish. He appointed appointed a, a fat fish to go swallow Jonah and rescue him. And Jonah's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm as close to death as it's possible, possible to be and still be alive, but I cry out to you, God, if anybody's going to do something, it has to be you because I recognize, verse 3, you're the one who put me here. You're the one who put me here. Your judgment, what you've done, is deserved. It's right. Jonah doesn't, it's kind of interesting, and it's one of the missing pieces that will sort of, that sort of hints ahead at what happens in chapter 3 and chapter 4. Jonah doesn't actually go all the way as to say, I have done this to myself. You are right in judging me. He doesn't, he doesn't say, I have sinned. I have done wrong. He doesn't admit to sin, but he does say, God, you are judging me, and it's appropriate. It's right. One of the things we have to come to terms with, one of the things Jonah has to come to terms with, if we're going to see grace and understand grace for what it is, we have to come to the realization that God's punishment, God punishing us is just, it's right, it's appropriate. That's a hard message. It's not really one, I I don't want to hear that, so I can't imagine you want to hear that very much. I have a hard time saying uh, things like, I am sinful, I am wicked. I'd much rather say, I made a mistake. I was wrong. Because sinful, wicked, evil, those words imply that I should be punished. Mistake, mistaken, on the wrong track imply that I just need a little bit of help to get back onto the right track, you know, to learn the truth. I, maybe you're like me. I don't particularly want a God who punishes. I would rather a God who helps. Right? Don't condemn me. Send me to therapy. Right? Give me the help I need so that I can do what I need to do in order to be a little bit better. Jonah's in the fish, I think, essentially saying, I don't need therapy. I deserve what you're doing to me, God. Your justice is right. Your judgment is true. You are justified when you judge and righteous righteous when you act. Jonah says, your waves, you cast me in, your billows are swamping me. God is just when he judges us 
for our disobedience, for our sinfulness, for our idolatry. That's a hard thing to say out loud. But it's not the end of the story either. Let's keep going. Besides just recognizing that God is just when he judges, that God's punishment is just, Jonah also needs to come to an understanding, to a realization that he, in fact, is powerless to do anything about his situation, about God's just punishment. And that begins to come through in in verses uh, 4 through 8. So 2 and 3 were kind of the first main thought of this prayer psalm. 4 through 8 are the next one. And we see this transition of uh, emotional state of the prophet as he moves from despair in verse 1 down to as deep as he can get before coming back up. And in verses 8 and then 9, especially saying, "I, I will praise you, I will offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. Jonah is on this emotional, I'd call it a roller coaster, but it really goes down and then he's lifted back up. Let's watch it as it happens because what's significant in here is who's doing the different actions. Who's driving Jonah down and who's lifting Jonah up? Look at verse 4. Jonah says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. I'm, I'm outside of the realm of your consciousness. I am beyond the point where you pay attention to me. God, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. And the second half of verse 4 causes translators a lot of wrestling because it doesn't sound like it really fits uh, the rest of the psalm. It's, he's, he's in despair and then hope and then despair again. Um, and maybe it's translated correctly the way it's translated here. There's a sort of a minority perspective on how this verse should be translated. It has to do with like Hebrew consonants and their vowels that were added later and you know, if you see the letters R-D in English, but there's no vowels, it could be red or read or the color red or all sorts of different words. Same thing, that something similar to that happens in Hebrew. Anyway, long story short, a way to say there's a minority perspective on this verse that I agree with, even though I admit that it's not the most popular reading, that takes the second half of this verse as a rhetorical question. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Will I ever again look upon your holy temple? I'm driven away from your sight. I'm driven away, he says. Will I ever look again on your holy temple? There's, again, irony here. He wasn't driven away. He ran away. And for a guy who's running away from God, he's awful interested all of a sudden in going back to church. I was driven away from you. I don't know if I will ever again look upon your holy temple. And then verse 5, verse 6, he describes the situation. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. He's hit rock bottom. But in verse 6, he says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. As he pictures himself, puts himself in the belly of Sheol, the the center of the realm of the dead. Not only is that how far he has gone, but the bars are closed upon him forever. It's impossible for him to come back. And he admits in this verse, the gates are closed, they're locked, they're barred. There's nothing I can do. All Jonah has... All Jonah is able to do, he admits in verse 6, I went down. That was his contribution to the story, continuing to go down. He says, I went 
down, and now the way back is closed on me forever. No ability at all to save himself. Beyond hope, powerless. But it's only in this point where he is beyond hope and admits to being powerless that the prayer flips. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God. Now, of course, in this point in the narrative, he's not yet been brought back up. He's still in the belly of the fish. This is one of the ways that we know uh, or can reasonably assume that this uh, prayer psalm is sort of a, a, an artistic resetting of Jonah's prayer and Jonah's prayer experience uh, written out after the fact. It's very uh, symmetrical. It comes to a point. It comes away from it. There's a lot of parallelism and stuff like that. Um, I don't know anyone who, um, after being in darkness for three days, would be able to pray so artistically. Maybe Tom Waltz, but no, no one mortal uh, is able to do that. So this, this is a sort of a, a recasting of Jonah's prayer in all the language of worship. There are uh, allusions and parallels all throughout Scripture, the Psalms and other poetic parts of Scripture that, that come through in this. Uh, you could kind of say maybe Jonah's using all the right words, but I think it's better to, to look at it and say this, this was compiled this way after the fact to really raise for us the central point, the central recognition of Jonah that there was nothing he could do at this point. He's in the belly of the fish, and there's no getting out of it unless God does something. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God, and he uses the covenant name for God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. You rescued me. You delivered me. He said the name of God before one time, but it was sort of in just like, I pledge allegiance to my God who, made the make, who is the maker of heavens and water and earth, right? It, it didn't mean much. And now he's calling out to God, you're the one who is lifting me out of the pit. Jonah is powerless, which is something we only realize when we are in such complete and utter darkness that the only thing left to see his grace. Like Jonah, I think we have to sometimes be brought to the point of complete darkness so that we can see the grace of God that has always been there, trying to get our attention. Now, Jonah doesn't just need to understand that uh, God is just in his punishment or that Jonah himself is powerless. He also needs to see that salvation costs something. To be rescued, to be delivered, for someone to go out of their way to redeem a person from a situation they have gotten themselves into and cannot get themselves out of implies, it, I shouldn't say implies, I mean it necessarily means that the person doing the rescuing has to pay some sort of price. Twice in Jonah's prayer, verse 4 and verse 7, he refers to the holy temple. 
In verse 4, in this sense of despair, will I ever again see your holy temple? And in verse 7, when he says, when my life was fainting away and I remember the Lord, my prayer came to you and my prayer came into your holy temple. And we know from the Old Testament that God had promised to speak from the temple, but when you picture it, don't picture church. Remember, holy of holies, there's a veil, and behind the veil is this room that only the great high priest sees once a year during the great day of atonement ritual in which uh, inside of that room is the the Ark of the Covenant, above it the mercy seat, the tablet of the Ten Commandments, the law of God. And once a year, the priest during the Day of Atonement ritual slaughters an animal, takes its blood, goes into the Holy of Holies, and sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat, on the Ark of the Covenant. And the blood comes between the law of God, which condemns and absorbs. It takes in the wrath of God, the anger of God towards our sinful self-destructiveness towards the cancer of sin within each of us. It absorbs that anger so that the sinner can walk away forgiven. For Jonah to say, my prayer went to the temple, I look to the temple, is not to say, I can't wait to go back to church on Sunday. It's to say, I am looking towards the only source of salvation, the only source of deliverance, whether God, you physically deliver me from this fish or not, I'm looking towards the only source of deliverance, which comes when the blood of an animal is given, when the life of an animal is given for me. All salvation, all redemption costs something. And for Jonah, it's not enough just to get this glimpse that that God is right when he judges or that we are powerless to do anything about it. But if that payment, if what is needed for us to be rescued has to come from someone else, there's nothing we could do to earn it, then we finally begin to understand grace. We finally begin to see that God is right. There's nothing we can do and only he can purchase our salvation. Only he can pay the price. That's grace. If you have one of those three or two of those three beliefs, you don't have grace. You don't have the freely given grace of God in our salvation. These are the things that Jonah has had to figure out and expresses through this prayer. Uh, This prayer that has come at the very bottom in utter darkness, which ironically, is sometimes the only place where we can see clearly. Now, there are a few things missing, and I tried to point them out as we went along. Jonah doesn't, uh, doesn't ever seem to admit to any wrongdoing, just says, God, you're just. Uh, Jonah is this guy who's running from God and yet now very concerned about offering proper worship to God. But, but even more than those things we pointed out along the way, verse 8 shows us that Jonah is getting there, but he's not quite grasping grace yet. Look at verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. So verse 7, he's casting his mind to the holy temple. My prayer came to you into the temple, but, you know, those who worship idols and sacrifice to idols, those who worship empty gods have forsaken the hope that they could have in your grace, in your steadfast love, in your loving kindness. 
It's the Hebrew word chesed that's behind that. It's a great word, and every time I type it into my computer, it changes it to cheesed. <laughs> Darn you, autocorrect. Uh, God's loving kindness, his grace towards us, Jonah says, is forsaken by those who worship idols. Who worships idols? Certainly not Jonah. He's a true Israelite. But those pagan sailors that threw him overboard, those Ninevites that God is calling him to preach to, or those people who have idols on their shelves and worship those empty idols, they've, they've given up. They've forsaken. They don't deserve your grace. Even in the midst of this prayer where Jonah is saying, you are right, there's nothing I can do. If you are going to save me, God, you have to do it. And by the way, I want to say thanks for making me the kind of person who deserves your grace. Jonah still has progress he needs to make. Which explains a little bit about what's going to happen in chapter 3 and chapter 4 next week. Tom will be up here leading us through the first couple of verses of chapter 3. And after that, Jeff's going to take us through the rest of chapter 3 and chapter 4 as we try to understand how could a prophet who's been miraculously rescued and delivered by God from you know, the, the bowels of shale still get mad when God extends grace? Well, it's because he's getting there. Not quite there yet. But still, verse 9. Even with this slight detour in verse 8 that seems to indicate that Jonah's still working on it, still working on seeing other people as deserving of grace simply for being people in need. Uh, verse 9, he says, But I, I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. I'm going to do it right, I'm going to worship you correctly. What I have vowed, I will pay. And he ends with this sort of doxology, a, a creed and a confession. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And it's at that point that the Lord spoke to the fish, and it literally puked Jonah out on the dry land. God rescues Jonah even though he's still in the dark about grace. God rescues us, even though we're still in the dark about grace. So as we read Jonah and as we read this story, I mean, we have to start asking ourselves some questions. What about us? If it's true for Jonah that sometimes we have to be in the dark before we can see grace clearly, what about us? Do we need to be taken into the dark to see grace clearly? There were three fundamental background beliefs that Jonah needed to recognize, to express in order for grace to be appealing and not just another uh, system of belief or list of things to mentally assent to. And those same three beliefs are true for us. Uh, so some diagnostic questions. When you think about God's judgment, do we really believe, not just intellectually, but 
feel the weight of? Do we really believe that if, if it were not for Jesus, we deserve eternal punishment? Do we really feel like that's true, that we deserve the punishment, that the wages of sin is death? That's one thing to say, but do you feel like that's true for you? I was challenged once by a friend in seminary. If I look in the mirror and, and say, you know, I'm wrong, I'm mistaken, I did something bad, even I sinned, I'm, I'm still playing it down a little bit. He told me to go look in the mirror and look at myself and say, you are evil. Can you say that? If we can't, we're still in the dark about grace. If we don't understand how bad we are, how much our sins deserve punishment, then grace isn't grace. It's just a handout. Second diagnostic question. Are you willing to admit that you're powerless to do anything about it? Because I'm not. I don't like being powerless. Uh, You can pretty much guarantee that when I think there's no option left, I'm still going to find options. As long as I've got this, I can Google my way out of anything, (laughs) right? This makes me omnipotent and omniscient. I can figure it out. I can apply some technique or some technology or some, uh, some pattern of worship, some behavior, some sacrifice. I can give something or do something or become something that will make me worthy of the grace that God has given. Or even worse, will, will allow me to earn the grace that I think I have to earn from God that is not, I, I can't wrap my mind around it being freely given. We don't like to admit we're powerless. I don't know, do any of you like to admit you're powerless? Show of hands, I see one. We don't, it doesn't come easy for us. Are you able to feel the weight of your inability to save yourself? If we don't, we're still in the dark about grace. Third diagnostic question. Are we willing to feel the weight of what sin cost God? There's a tendency to say, God has forgiven me. It's kind of what he does. It's not that hard for him, and so I don't have to worry too much about then the way I behave or what I do. I can, I can go look at this thing and say, okay, I know that's wrong. I know it's cowardly. I know it's not what I should do. I know it's selfish. I know it's self-indulgent, whatever, but God's going to forgive me for it. If grace turns us into people who don't particularly care much about holiness, it's not grace that we're talking about. Because grace cost God. Our salvation cost God everything. Jonah went overboard into the water, down to the the center of death, so that a, a ship full of pagans wouldn't be swept overboard. And Jesus in Matthew 12 says, look, look at 
Look at that. If you want to understand me, look at Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so I will be three days and three nights at the heart of the earth, at the core of the place of the dead, at the center of hell for us. Jonah's sojourn in the deep was three days long before he caught a light of God's grace. Jesus gave so much more for you and for me, for our sin. If we look at our sin and we think, well, it doesn't cost God that much. I mean, it's, he just forgives. That's, we don't understand grace. We don't understand grace. It's only when we see how God is perfectly justified in judging us for what we have done, how there's nothing we can do to earn anything other than that judgment, and that He alone pays the price to lift us out of the pit, that we can go to that grace, that freely given gift, and see it as, as freedom, as a release from bondage, not another list of rules or a thing we have to believe or the inability to sleep in on Sunday mornings anymore. If we don't understand what Jonah is beginning to understand, we don't understand grace. Jonah had to be taken into the dark, complete, utter, total, physical darkness in order for the spiritual light of grace that had always been there for him to finally shine bright enough that it got his attention. And he's beginning to get it. And God is merciful, and he delivers Jonah from the fish, and we'll read, he takes him into Nineveh and then back out into the darkness of despair again, this time on a hillside, to tell him again, this is my grace. Praise God that he takes even the world's worst missionaries like Jonah, like us. He takes us into the dark to show us his grace again and again and again. But he never takes us where he hasn't already gone himself. And there we find grace. Pray with me. Father, I admit that I am not particularly interested in being taken into the darkness. I don't really want to be taken to the pit of despair to where the only thing I have is your grace. I don't want to be where that's all, where that, that's the only thing left for me. I'd rather do it on my own. I'd rather keep myself pure, do all the right things so that I don't need your grace. But when I actually look at myself, I have to admit, left to myself, I only go down. And what you give me over to when I do is absolutely justified. And when I see myself going to the same place again and again and again, I realize there's nothing that I can do to save myself. So God, I cry out to you, deliver us.
overwhelm us with the cost of your grace, the magnitude of your love towards us as you give us this completely undeserved deliverance. Overwhelm us with a picture of your goodness to us in Jesus, that we may be transformed and become a people who live by grace. In Jesus' name we pray.